Good morning. I'm Kayla Posadas, and today our reading this morning it's going to be from Acts chapter 2. On the day of the Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windsurf, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then, what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared, appeared and settled on each of them. And everybody present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages. Uh, as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the light noise, everybody came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya are around Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and Coverings through Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That was fantastic. Kayla nailed all those names, and I told her I didn't know how to pronounce them, so do your best. That was better than I was going to do. That was fantastic. Well, good morning, everybody. Those of you finding the shade way back over there, this is the funniest uh, arranged church service I've ever seen. If you get a little hot, there are spots up here. Uh, feel free to kind of just wander around to the front um, or bring the golf umbrella. Those things are uh, uh, happy to be brought here. We want you to be present and do that in whatever way you possibly can. So recognize that we're going to be flexing a little bit this summer, including how we kind of get dressed, how we sit, all these things. Well, good morning again. I'm Johnny Cursino, the lead pastor of Christ Church Vienna. We've been looking over the past five to six weeks at God being a generous God and his invitation to us to be generous people. And we've talked about that in terms of being generous of spirit, people generous with those we disagree with, generous with our resources, and becoming a generous community. And we're looking at that again today as we reflect on the Pentecost and what God was doing on that first Sunday on Pentecost 2,000 years ago. So the story of Pentecost was 50 days after Easter. The disciples are gathered in Jerusalem and they're waiting on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit falls on the disciples, the followers of Jesus, and something new is birthed. And if you read the book of Acts, you can read it in a couple of different lenses. One of the lenses is the birth of the church. So the church that we're a part of today was birthed in Acts. Another way to look at it is the movement of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the disciples and the Christians, and begins to spread around the world. Still another way is the gospel mission of the church, going from Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. And lastly, it's to look at it in terms of how God was working and wanting to work in all people, in every people group on the face of the earth. And that was his intention from the beginning of time. That's what we're looking at specifically this morning. So we get this in the passage that Kayla just read for us. 
on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples. And they go out of the upper room into the city of Jerusalem that's filled with people from all over the Mediterranean basin, all over the known world, all those different places that Kayla just read. And as they're praising God, declaring the wonders of what God has done, all of these people hear the disciples who were Galileans speaking in their language, a language they had never learned, speaking in tongues in a, in a foreign language that only they could understand, and even the people speaking them didn't fully understand. God was moving in amazing ways to include all peoples. This was a reversal, as a lot of commentators have said, on the Tower of Babel judgment. So in Genesis 11, the peoples, the nations, it, it actually gives a table of nations, much like listed here. A table of nations are listed, and then in Genesis 11, the people gather together, they're going to make a great name of themselves, become their own people, their own glory without God. God's judgment falls, and they are scattered. Their languages divide them. But here on Pentecost, they are brought together under the authority and power of the Holy Spirit, worshiping God and hearing their praises, the praises of God in their language. They're brought together. If you look at the, the different place names in Acts, in that little passage that we just read, all those place names are regions around the Mediterranean. They include parts of North Africa, the Middle East, and Southern Europe. If we were going to break them down in terms of how we see divisions in our own culture, what they had there on that day were black and brown and white people hearing the gospel and the praises of God in their own language. What God was doing on Pentecost was the birthing of a new covenant, the Holy Spirit falling on the people. And the amazing thing about this is the whole Bible talks about the Holy Spirit, or talks about the spirit and presence of God. And in Eden, the people walked with God, Adam and Eve walked with God. But then, then God was separate from them, and they, he only dwelled with Abram and his people. And then in a temple, you had to go to the temple to see and be in the presence of God. But then Jesus comes as the incarnate presence of God until Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit falls on every single believer, regardless of where they're from. And it was God saying, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that I have come to begin is for all peoples, every person on the face of the earth. This was absolutely shocking to first century Jews. And you have to remember, the Christians at first were Jews in the first century. Every one of them was Jewish. And a Jewish mentality in the first century thought of themselves as God's chosen people. God's uniquely chosen people. And that went back 2,000 years to the calling of Abraham, Abram and the promises made to him that they were uniquely God's people and nobody else. And it was almost as if by the first century they had forgotten that God said to Abram, I will, make, I will bless you so that you can bless other people, bless the nations. And in Isaiah 49, the prophet says, Isaiah the prophet says, you shall be a light to the Gentiles. But by the first century, the Jewish world was divided. It was as divided as it could possibly be with an ethnic and cultural superiority against the Gentiles. So hear that. They were as culturally superior and prejudiced as you could possibly get against Gentiles. And it had nothing to do with what Jesus was doing. Jesus' kingdom movement was pushing out to the ends of the earth, even as he was walking around Galilee and Jerusalem, right? He, he meets with a Samaritan woman at the well. 
and he heals a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion's servant. So even from the ministry of Jesus, he's reaching out to the Gentiles. And then, after his resurrection, in Matthew 28, Jesus gives the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, Luke records the same incident before Jesus' ascension. And Jesus says, hey disciples, stay, stay until the Holy Spirit falls on you. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit falls, then I want you to go. You are to be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so they wait. And the Holy Spirit falls on them in power. And they see amazing things happen as people from other languages hear them praising God. And what do the disciples do next? They stay. They don't go anywhere. They stay around Jerusalem, hanging out with each other. You know, we love as Christians, if you've been in churches for years, we love this passage at the end of Acts. It's Acts 2, 42 to 49. And basically it says that the disciples had everything together. They were gathered in Jerusalem. They had everything together. They shared with one another. They were getting together in each other's homes and eating food together. They were breaking bread together. They were worshiping together. Every day they went to the temple and praised God and prayed. And they had the favor of the entire city. And we think, oh, that's what the church should look like. We want the church to look like that. But you know what? They were being disobedient. They were not doing what God had called them to do. They had the power of the Holy Spirit. They had the good news of Jesus Christ. They had the fellowship of one another, and they were hoarding, hoarding the generosity of God. So eventually, in order to get them moving, in a sense, God uses a bad thing. The persecution that's brought on them in, in Acts 7 and 8. Stephen is executed, and then Paul, Saul Paul, begins to persecute Christians, and they have to spread out. And then the gospel goes to Samaria, and an Ethiopian eunuch, a man who was unclean ceremonially, who was from another nation and ethnicity and language group, the gospel goes to him. And yet, it takes fits and starts for them to get that the gospel is meant for all people. In Acts chapter 10, Peter, who's the head of all of the church, essentially at this point, Peter, who's like the foundation, the rock, he isn't really sure that Gentiles should be included in the gospel. So God gives him a vision. It's a vision of food coming down on a blanket. It's food that Jews were not allowed to eat. And God, the Spirit says, go ahead and eat. He gets this vision. He ends up feeling called to go see Cornelius, uh, who is a Roman soldier, a centurion himself, so a Gentile and an oppressor. And he goes to him and realizes, in the midst of all of this, that God does not show favoritism on one ethnicity. But God's favoritism, his promises are for any, any who believe and follow Jesus. And yet, the disciples don't get it yet. They still wrestle with this. A few chapters later in Acts 15, the Jerusalem church has to gather together with all the leaders and decide if Gentiles are allowed in without becoming Jewish. Do they need to look, sound like, act like Jewish people or not? Is it necessary to play the songs, wear the things that Jewish people do to be included? They decide, I guess not. And yet, again, there's fits and starts with allowing the Gentiles in. 
So much so that in the book of Galatians, which is really written about the issue between Jews and Gentiles and letting Gentiles in on the basis of grace, Paul writes about confronting Peter, even after the Cornelius incident, even after Acts 15, and he says, look, Peter came to Antioch, I was there. And when we were there, we were eating with Gentiles, which was not allowed, you were not allowed to do if you were Jewish, but he knew on the basis of grace you can eat with a Gentile. But then some Jewish Christians came from Jerusalem and he got nervous. Oh no, he was eating with the wrong people. So he pulled back and stopped eating with Gentiles. Peter, it says, was confronted by Paul. Paul said, you're acting like a hypocrite. And then what he goes on to say is he doesn't say, hey, Peter, you're being racist, stop it. Instead, he says, you are not keeping in step with the spirit. You're not walking in line with the gospel. He's saying basically play out the implications of the gospel. You know what the gospel says. It is by grace you've been saved. Let that sink in and push out the implications of that relationally. You know that before God, you're before God on the basis of his favor towards you and nothing that you have done. Now apply that horizontally. Apply the implications of the gospel. Now, in our modern era, we have to recognize the significance of the Jewish-Gentile divide, because we can overlap it or push it away pretty quickly. So that Jewish and Gentile divide was the issue of the first early church. It was the dividing issue of that early church. Paul, many of his letters were written about the issue. He's dealing with Judaizers. In, in Galatia, he's talking about you don't need to be circumcised. In Ephesians, this great description of the church, he digs in deep and pushes into the greatness of what God has done in uniting Jew and Gentile. It was clearly the issue of that cultural day. Paul decided if they couldn't work out the implications of the gospel, he was going to do it for them. So many of you know Ephesians. I'm going to push into this just a little bit to help us to understand it. In Ephesians chapter 2, there's this famous passage that all Christians of a certain stripe have memorized. In Ephesians chapter 2, the first couple of verses, it's this beautiful description of the gospel. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Christ. It is by grace you and I have been saved. It is by grace through faith that we have been saved. Not by works so that no one can boast. We are God's workmanship, created for good works in Christ Jesus. It is by grace we have been saved, and Protestants for centuries have shouted, Amen. It is by grace I am saved. Amen. That's the end of the whole book, in the way that we tend to read it and preach it. It is by grace we have been saved. And yet, the very next verse, after this whole description of the grace of God, it is by grace we have been saved, and we are God's workmanship, created for great things, and it's as if Paul is saying, okay, you want to know what that means you need to do? Because in verse 11 of chapter 2, the very next verse, Paul says, It is by grace you've been saved, therefore. Therefore. And the next two chapters are Paul describing the implications of the therefore. And the therefore is this. And he's writing to Gentile Christians. He says, you who were once far off have been brought near. Christ in his blood has made peace between Jew and Gentile. We are one in Christ. 
In chapter 2, verse 19, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens. That's nationality. We are being built together into one temple, collectively a building, each of us a brick or a stone necessary as a part of this building. And in Ephesians 3, 6, as he's carrying on this argument about, about the implications of the gospel on our social relationships, he says, this is the mystery of Christ. And when Paul says mystery, he gets excited. It's like he's saying, this is the thing everyone needs to be aware of. In Ephesians 3, the thing everyone needs to be aware of. The mystery of Christ. And when he says mystery, it doesn't mean like, we've got to figure it out with some magic formula. He means something that was hidden that is now revealed. When he says the mystery of Christ or the mystery of the gospel, which he says in another book, he means God's plan since before time began that we just now fully realize what it is. God's plan since before time began was that Gentiles, Ephesians 3, 6, are fellow heirs, fellow heirs, inheritance, members of the same body, and partakers of the promises of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So let me summarize what I'm trying to say. God in Christ Jesus was reconciling you to him and you to me. So think about that. God in Christ was reconciling you to him and you to me. Both. God was reconciling you to him and Jew to Gentile, rich to poor, Hutu to Tutsi, Croatian to Serbian to Bosnian. And for us, that means he was reconciling black and white. The gospel calls us in the United States to live out the implications of the gospel socially and relationally into racial and cultural healing and justice and diversity. We are called to be a generous community, working out the implications of the gospel. And the implication for us today, the divisions in America today are not Jew and Gentile. They are racial. It was a year ago this Tuesday that George Floyd was murdered. And it set off a summer of racial protests, anger, and grief, and reckoning. And that was not just something that's happened in the past couple of years. There's a long history a long history of darkness and evil and brutality and sin. And every so often it rears itself again because we have not achieved the healing and reconciliation that the gospel talks about. Now look, I know something is also true. From an academic perspective, you know race is a social construct? It's, it's just a made-up academic construct. It doesn't actually exist. It's like color of skin. Historically, everyone looked at ethnicities, nations, language groups, all these things. But, but, it doesn't matter if it's a made up category because in this country, it is our problem category. Just like Jew and Gentile was back then, which I don't understand. Just like Hutu and Tutsi was in Rwanda 30 years ago, 
which make, means nothing to me. Those clan-based things don't mean anything to me. But our issue in this country, it is a racial issue. It is a cultural issue as well. We have cultural divides. And I actually think we need to own that to live out the implications of the gospel. Jesus' church, the church that Jesus birthed by the power of the Holy Spirit, is to be a generous community for all people. And I think for us, that has implications with racial and cultural difference. And I believe we are called to do a few things. To learn, to walk, to give. I think the gospel, what God does in Acts, what he is calling us to through the story of the gospel in the New Testament, calls us to learn, to understand, appreciate, and enjoy diversity the way that God loves it. God loves diversity. God is Father, Son, and Spirit and births diversity in creation and then calls us into diversity. You know, I can know God because I have the Holy Spirit in me and I have God's Word. So me by myself, I can know and experience God. But something I've discovered is as I'm in a small group and in those tight relationships with people and we're talking about God and praying together and studying God's word, I understand God more because I see angles of God that somebody else's personality or, or experiences are revealing that I would never see. I've also seen in a church like this that I'm gonna see and hear and understand more of God's nature than I am just in my small group or in my family. And ultimately, I think that the diversity of cultures would suggest that there's even more of God to see. That a multi-ethnic gathering gives me even bigger pictures of who God is. In other words, if I want to hunger to see more of God, then I need to have relationships outside of people who think and look just like me. It's a discipleship call, an opportunity. We need to learn to understand and love diversity the way God does. Second, we need to walk alongside those who look and believe and think and experience differently than we do. To walk alongside, to bear witness with, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And that means learning to listen. You know, a number of years back, I learned the power of presence. I know a number of you have had the same experience, but I've had to walk with friends in cancer and death. You know what I realized about walking with a good friend in cancer and death is that I don't know what he's experiencing. I can't know his depression, his pain, his joys. I can't know what he's experiencing. I can't feel what he's feeling, but I can be present with him. There's an invitation in our current cultural moment to find friends to walk alongside and be present even if you can't fully understand what somebody else is going through. I think this gospel calls us to learn to walk and to give, give up our time, our energy, our resources, our emotions, to learn to walk, and honestly, sometimes even be willing to give up power, influence, autonomy, comfort. A lot of what drives me in some of these division debates is fear. Anxiety about losing place or power as opposed to trusting that what I have in Christ is all I need, and to not live in fear or act in fear. You know, Paul's metaphors for a reconciled community are in Ephesians 2 and 3, and he gives some metaphors. He talks about a nation, a building, a 
a body and a family. That Jew and Gentile, so you could put in any other category, Jew and Gentile are one nation, one building, one body, one family. You know, if, let's say, if just talking about my body, if, if I have hypothetically, if, I, if hypothetically, for eight months I've been dealing with some sort of sciatica, hypothetically, like the pain is sort of right here and radiates down the leg and I can feel it about the thigh right there, hypothetically, does my right hand say, that's not my problem? Does my right hand start kind of talking to my left hand about how the issue is really my weak core? Or does my whole body feel the pain and experience it and try to compensate for it? Let's talk about a family, because that's the other metaphor that Paul uses in Ephesians 2 and 3. Let's say hypothetically that you know you have children, and not I know not everyone has children, but you can imagine this. You have children, and when your daughter is growing up, she struggles socially, horribly socially. But you didn't. Let's say you always made friends easily. You always had a circle of friends. Wherever you went, you had friends. It, it, you just you never struggled with being uh, popular in sub circles. It was always easy for you wherever you went. But your daughter, you find as she is growing up, she struggles socially. She is left out. She is ostracized, even bullied. Going to school is a horror and a terror for you, for her. So what do you say? Do you blame your kid? I mean, you didn't have a problem with it. Doesn't she know how to deal with stuff? Or do you try to understand your daughter and what she's experiencing? Do you walk with her? Maybe even advocate for her. If you do these things, it will cost you. If you care for your daughter, it's gonna cost you emotionally, it's gonna cost you in time, it may even cost you in money as you're trying to get her signed up for things or maybe move schools, find some place to be connected. But is your daughter's social issues her problem or your problem? If she's your kid, she's part of your family, of course it's your problem too. Think out, work out the implications of the gospel socially and relationally. Work them out. Let me close on this. In Revelation 7 and 21, there's this great vision of heaven and the new creation. Basically, God's ends for all things. And in Revelation 7, it talks about all the believers, all the believers, a countless number of believers, worshiping God before the throne. And it says that they come from every nation and tribe and tongue and people group, and they are worshiping God before the throne. And then in Revelation 21, it describes that all the peoples come before the throne of God to lay down their glory and their honor and their treasures. In other words, the best of what they have to offer. And they lay them down and it says, the nations bring their glory and honor their best before God. That means this, in eternity, in heaven, in the new creation, there still is cultural and ethnic difference cultural and ethnic diversity remains. And each culture, each ethnicity, each race has something unique to bring, a gift to lay before the throne. Anglican pastor and Wheaton professor Esau Macaulay 
in his recent book, Reading While Black, describes Revelation 7 and 21 this way. These distinct peoples, cultures and languages, are everlasting. At the end of time, we do not see the elimination of differences. Instead, the very diversity of cultures is a display of the glory of God. The vision of God's kingdom, in other words, is incomplete, he writes, without black and brown persons worshiping alongside white persons as one kingdom under the rule of one king. I think there's a unique opportunity for gospel-believing churches in the United States, a unique opportunity and calling to live out the implications of the gospel and be a generous community to be gospel-reconciled community for all people, all people. Let's pray. The prayer for Pentecost says this, Almighty and everlasting God, you have given to us your servants grace by the confession of a true faith, to acknowledge the glory of the eternal trinity, and in the power of your divine majesty to worship in unity, you have sent your gospel to all peoples, all races, all nations, all cultures, all peoples. Keep us steadfast in this faith to worship you until we all together see you in your eternal glory. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.